Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR and Uprise Radio is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the first invasion on the country from which we record and the invasion of these lands by British imperial forces, which continues to this day using the mechanisms of war to murder and oppress people on this land. Solidarity and respect to all First Nations people of this land. We hear our political leaders speak of injustices committed overseas and the absolute failure and miscarriage of justice against First Nations peoples continues. As we saw just the other day with the acquittal of Zachary Rolfe for the murder of Kumanjai Walker sending love and solidarity to the Walker family and the Yuendamu community. About a month ago on Uprise Radio, we spoke about the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, what would be the cause, how the West, represented by NATO, would respond, and what a leftist, progressive, anti-war response to such action should look like. And since then, Russia has invaded, in the last 21 days, sending thousands of soldiers, not only into the Donbass region of Ukraine's southeast, but even pushing towards the capital in Kiev, with heavy fighting within 20 kilometres of the city as we record this. While much of the world has condemned the invasion, no other country has come as yet to Ukraine's aid in an on-the-ground capacity, and while anti-war protests have been held in Melbourne, in Moscow, around Europe, across the world, Russian state media continues to describe the events as a special military operation to demilitarise Ukraine and prevent a so-called genocide of ethnic Russians in the Donbass regions. Putin's justification for this war rests heavily on the idea of ethnic Russians in the Donbass region supposedly keen to leave Ukraine and reunite with Mother Russia. To discuss the veracity of those claims, we're joined now by Kostas Leotidis, a lecturer in international relations at Deakin University and author of the book Self-Determination and Collective Responsibility in the Secessionist Struggle. Kostas, thanks so much for coming on Uprise Radio. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. So, Kostas, you've written about minority minority groups um, in recently independent states or newly created states like post-Soviet states such as Moldova and Georgia, Kurds in Iraq, Syria and Iran, even the Rohingya in Myanmar. 
How would you characterize the history of the Donbass struggle for independence from Ukraine? Um, well, I think that uh, this is another episode of the ongoing battle that happened since the breakup of uh, the Soviet Union back in 1991. Um, as we remember, uh, uh, the former the, the Soviet Union dissolved into its federal states. Uh, and therefore, the zone of protection around Russia that was present for nearly uh, a century suddenly disappeared. So Russia was quite keen in order to ensure that this zone of influence, and which for, from, from their perspective is uh, a zone of security uh, to keep the enemies as far away from its borders as possible, needs to be reclaimed. Uh, and within this context, uh, from the very beginning of the dissolution, since 1991, we can see, for example, in Moldova, when uh, a small uh, uh, strip of land, uh, the Republic of Transnistria, which since then is what we call a de facto state, an unrecognized state, uh, has been supported by Russia, even today, in order to maintain its grip in, in the region, in Moldova. Uh, we have seen a similar uh, episode in Georgia, in 2008, when Georgia did try to approach the West, did try to uh, close the ties uh, with NATO and the European Union. And there was a, an intensive uh, reaction by, by Russia, which again uh, created two de facto entities, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And they used this uh, conflict as a pretext for its own intervention in the country in order to have control. And I think that what we see now with Donbass in Ukraine, because Donbass emerged suddenly in 2014, apart from the Crimea episode where there was a full annexation and became a Russian territory proper in, you know, in a first world world fashion, if you like, this doesn't happen since 1945 easily. Uh, so with Donbass, we can see again another episode of creating uh, in a Russophone area, a separatist sentiment uh, informed by a very strong sense of nationalism because Russian nationalism is quite intense. Uh, it's a very strong ideology uh, and it carries a lot of weight in the population. So they use that, uh, if you like, uh, in a way to exercise pressure and exercise control into you know, the Ukrainian affairs. We know that the history of Ukraine was on and off with its approach towards the West. For the period that Yanukovych was in power, was a friend of Putin. Could you talk a little bit about the events of the Euro Maiden and how those events and the removal of Yanukovych may have strengthened these sentiments in the in the Donbass? Like how um, transparent, you know, were the politics in Ukraine at that time in terms of international involvement in Ukrainian affairs? Well, we have to say that, and uh, you, you do come across uh, a lot of this commentary, uh, NATO and the European Union uh, have tried to approach Ukraine, have tried to, if you like, close the ties with Ukraine. And uh, at the same time, Ukraine was quite keen to become, to have the prospect at least, to become a member of the European Union. This is not a, a, an easy thing to achieve in terms of foreign policy. Uh, getting to the, uh, accessing the European Union economically and politically is an immense task. It would be a huge payoff for the Ukrainian society and those who defend this kind of policy. 
So I think that what we saw with the Maidan uh, 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 episodes, the, the riots, was that that was very close to happen. Ukraine was a very, very close to sign uh, an agreement with the European Union for free trade, uh, a free tariff zone, as they call. So they were very close to achieve this major step. And uh, of course, this was not welcomed by Russia. So they did everything they could in order to support Yanukovych, who actually called it off. And that had as a result uh, what, uh, what followed in the, in the Maidan uh, riots. Uh, and after that point, again, the subsequent uh, presidents did try to strike, if you like, a balance and try to not to lose the prospect of uh, joining the European Union. Uh, but uh, again, Russia uh, has been adamant. And if you like, from a different point of view, uh, and maybe this is something that we don't pay too much attention, but uh, if we talk a little bit about it, I think that there is a lot of essence there, is the very fact that Russia, as we speak, has withdrawn from the Council of Europe. And the Council of Europe is probably the strongest organization to protect and promote human rights in the world. It's a regional organization. They are concerned with uh, uh, human rights in Europe, but it is the most developed one. It has the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, it has uh, contributed immensely in the promotion and protection of human rights between the member states of the Council of Europe. So to see Russia withdrawing from this organization is not good news at all. And this, if you like, indicates the degree of withdrawal that they are prepared to take. I wonder, Costas, if this is reflective of a trend that we've seen since, I would say, the beginning of this, this century in a kind of waning of the multilateralism that characterized the second half of the 20th century. You know, we, we're not seeing much of a response to Russia's actions here, to Russia's actions in the annexation of Crimea. We saw very little international sanctioning of the US's illegal wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I just wonder what you think about, you know, even Brexit, the Trump presidency, you know, we're seeing so much kind of hardening of international borders, the refugee crisis around the world, you know, an inability to get together and tackle big issues like climate change. What's your predictions, uh, you know, for, for the near future and the way the world or Europe and in the rest of the world can get along? Well, I cannot predict. If I could predict, I would be a prophet. So what I'm tr trying to say here is to, to sort of try to fill the pearls of the trajectories here, what is in place, if you like. Uh, if we want to have a very hard look at what is happening in Russia with Ukraine from a very realistic, pragmatic, raw, if you like, perspective, and we would try to find a historical comparison to that, uh, probably it would be very close to the Cuba Missile Crisis. And let me explain why I say that before I move to what I think it's going to happen. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, what we had is first a move by the, uh, uh, the United States to install a series of uh, ballistic missiles in Turkey, which is then the frontier between the Soviet Union and NATO. The only distance was the Black Sea, because Ukraine then was part of the Soviet Union and Georgia and all these uh, countries. And then, as a retaliation, uh, the Soviet Union decided to install similar 
launching pads and missiles in Cuba, very close to the United States. And then we all know how close to the nuclear catastrophe we got over the, these 10 days of the crisis. And I think this is, if you like, the feeling of the Russia. Can we justify their actions? No, we cannot justify their actions at all. But it has to do with the way that there is precisely, as you mentioned, there is a very strong gap of global leadership at the moment, whether individual leadership or collective leadership. Uh, we don't have a clear forum or fora where there is willingness for countries to discuss uh, the new world order. And I think that this is happening because we're in transition phase. There's a lot of discussion about the rise of China. And there's a lot of discussion about when China will be ready to take over. And this is not only about the economy. Uh, just allow me to give you yet another example. When the United Nations uh, was formed in 1945, one of the reasons that the P5 became the P5 uh, was that they, if you like, agreed that there is a great collective responsibility by, this, by those countries to maintain and promote international peace and security. It was like a social contract, if you like, between them. And everybody so far tried to honor it one way or another. Therefore, China, for example, needs to act as a great power. And a great power, it may be aggressive, but it cannot only be aggressive. It may use physical violence to achieve some aims. We saw the United States doing the same thing, but also it needs to develop and promote uh, international law. It needs to promote conflict resolution. It needs to promote peace and security. And therefore it is a matter of whether this transition towards a new world order, whether with China being the leader or one of the leaders. So we are in this competing stage and i think the unwillingness of the countries to sit down it has to do with uh, with this uh, uh, flux that we have in, at the moment versus i wonder i think it's really interesting you know raising china in that kind of perspective and we hear a lot of you know really um racist sort of views in in australian media and i think very uneducated sort of understanding probably you know amongst the general population about some of these kind of arguments um you know probably to blame from the media but it's an interesting kind of perspective of that great power relations when you have you know the us is arguably a kind of crumbling and falling um empire and, and russia itself you know once an empire with a leader who you know is sort of doing all he can to revoke all of those things from Russia's great past to bring it forward. Yet China kind of sits in the background being asked from both sides about, you know, which, which um, piece are you going to play on the chessboard here? And everybody sort of sits and waits, like you said, is anticipating a future perhaps with China, uh, you know, playing more of a role of, of deciding things rather than, than waiting and, and responding to things. What do you think the next kind of moves are going to be for China? You know, we've seen, um, you know, we've seen Russia ask for military support from China and, and the US already warned uh, about that kind of response. You know, I guess, what do you think will happen and what do you think would be the smart kind of play from China here? Well, James, I'm going to use as my springboard uh, an incident that I'm quite familiar with from the Rohingya, if you like, episode of my research. 
So um, I think it was about two years, no, three years ago, uh, just after the exodus, the massive exodus started in 2017, the Rohingya fled to Bangladesh. So around 2018, I think it was September 2018 at the General Assembly, which is a quite popular meeting point for diplomatic relations because it happens once every year, you know, all the countries are there. So it's an excellent opportunity. So uh, China did try to get together Myanmar and Bangladesh in order to strike a deal about the repatriation. And not only that, they committed $1 billion to that. So if you like, the emphasis was that, you know, if I can pledge material commitment, then things will fall into place and they will happen. But it didn't. So I think that China is at a stage that it needs to develop its know-how when it comes on how to achieve uh, 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 strategic diplomatic aims without necessarily resorting to the use of violence or to aggression or anything like that. And I think that this is going to be a steep learning curve for China to be able not only to commit the material capacity, but also to have the ability to bring a lot of leverage into the discussion. Just, you know, think about the Camp David. Camp David didn't happen only because President Carter uh, pledged billions and billions of dollars, both to Egypt and Israel, but it was his own capacity and the know-how of the American foreign policy to strike a deal, if you see what I mean. So this know-how is in development at the moment in, uh, in, uh, in China, and they need to cover this ground fairly quickly. Uh, you know, the, the, the classic or, or the linear, if you like, uh, understanding that, you know, if we have the money, everything will fall into place. Well, I don't think this is going to happen. And on top of that, of course, we are talking about a country, uh, when we talk about China, which doesn't have the strong human rights background. So how are they going to defend uh, countries with a different perspective on human rights, with a different perspective on minority rights, with a different perspective of how societies should get together on that question of of when we're talking about human rights and and how we move forward in negotiating um ways in which countries go about protecting human rights i'm wondering what you make of the offer of israel uh to mediate talks between russia and ukraine in jerusalem um given israel's occupation of palestinian land and the human rights you know um, abuses that israel's committing against palestinians um and how that fits into more an international recognition of israel's sovereignty and the denial of that of the palestinians well mercedes this is one of the ironies that we come across in international relations and we tend to to fall into this kind of ironies for example india to give you another example has been offered to to uh, mediate in the Rohingya crisis, where you know there is a massive issue with their own uh, ethnic minorities within India. So uh, sometimes it's used as a diversionary tactic. So they try to increase their own uh, status uh, globally uh, by trying to make people forget what is happening domestically. However, uh, because we have civil society, because we have a fairly organized civil society at, to a number of countries. And this is something that I would like to come back later about the civil society and how important it was for Russia that. Um, we tend to remind to countries like Israel that you know it's very welcome to take an initiative, but it's good to have the same momentum in order to resolve the problems that you have internally. 
and try to have to set the barrier or the standard of human rights, both internally and externally at the same level. So uh, the only thing, the only way that we can do that is just keep reminding them and try to convince uh, these countries or these leaders that uh, the standard has to be the same. So you cannot treat people, uh, you cannot oppress people domestically and try to be the beacon of human rights uh, outside of the country. Uh, by the same token, for example, I happened to talk recently to a colleague in Iran uh, who are quite keen to hear about the problems of the Rohingya and the oppression of the Rohingya, but at the same time, Iran forgets that they oppress not only the Kurds, they oppress the Azeris, they oppress women, they oppress other religious uh, communities. So uh, it is a paradox. It is a paradox. In the same way that the Saudi Arabia, for example, was the, the, was the chair of the Human Rights Council of the United Nations a few years back. Uh, so Mercedes, to go back to, the, to, to your point, I think that we have to push, we need to push, we need to remind. And for that, a very strong civil society is important. And this is something that didn't happen in Russia after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So one of the reasons, if you like, that we have the same president for the past uh, 23 years now, 24 years, and he anticipates to stay in power for another 10 or 15 years, has to do with the lack of a very strong civil society, a civil society that push forward and they can bring change. Uh, they didn't have this experience. Uh, it was a very close society, a very close system. Uh, and then suddenly there was the absolute freedom, but no one was able to relegate a know-how to pass, if you like, the beacon, to, to relay the beacon of how civil society should be put, how, how civil society is organized, what kind of pressure you need to exercise to the politicians, how you move forward, how you organize your people in order to, you know, to demonstrate and explain what is the problem. So all that is missing. And the same, of course, we have in China. So this is a major, the lack of civil society in these countries is quite indicative why we're moving towards what many authors describe as semi-authoritarianism. I suppose it's in it comes to my mind in that, you know, in terms of the, it is a paradox in the way that the nation states operate um, on the basis of sovereignty. Uh, that, and so when a nation state denies the sovereignty of another or a colonised other, surely that empties out the meaning of sovereignty. So is that a embedded hypocrisy in the, in, in this is, idea is you, do you think that that's something that is possible to be get to get past or do you think that maybe in this might sound utopian but you know are there other ways or that might be possible um well sometimes when i discuss that with uh, with my colleagues at at the university so when we have the discussions and we, we talk about genocide for example uh, always the question crops up how is it possible the country uh which endures genocide to such a degree like the Holocaust, to treat other human beings in the way that their people were treated. How this, you know, how this stack up, how can you sort of forget or have a collective amnesia, if you like, and then suddenly realize or see everywhere uh, anti-Semitic voices. How is this possible? How can, can this happen? 
And I think, again, this has to do with uh, the way that we see things. And don't forget, it's one thing what the Israeli state says. And another thing, when you travel to Israel and you sit down with people, and there is a lot of people who absolutely disagree with what is happening. Of course. And this is the seed of hope. These people is the seed of hope. And these people actually do set the same standard, both home and abroad. So whatever happens within and whatever I should want to see, I, I want to see within in terms of human rights, I want everyone to be treated equally. This is what I project in my external relations. Uh, think the classic example of South Africa apartheid and how it was isolated as a pariah state. Yeah. So by the same token, uh, again, it is the civil society that is important. It is the voices that you need to hear. So it's one thing what states say, this is the formal foreign policy. This is the elite. Uh, they represent a number of people or a group of people, but not the whole people necessarily. And in Israel, I know for sure that you know, there is a lot of people who disagree with what Israel is doing. Absolutely. And I think, it, and, and also you can say the same thing about Australia and its oppressions of First Nations people as well, you know, so um, not, and so many other nation states. Exactly. And maybe we need that, a, a strong push to make Israel a pariah state until the apartheid ends as well, I think. You know, a little more than ironic, it's kind of rank hypocrisy, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think it, it also feels like a very uh, chilling sort of conversation that we're having about a country moving into that kind of spectrum of, you know, the Palestinians, you know, you mentioned South Africa, of Aboriginal people here, you know, of the people of Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, for we're essentially sort of talking about the Ukraine moving into, you know, an occupied failed state. And I think, um, you know, we've had lots of conversations about, countries that have where that's happened too but it feels very uh you know chilling to kind of hear about that about to happen um and I guess the other thing and I think we might have to finish up in a moment but is just to, I feel like we need to touch on this kind of haunting specter of, of nuclear war as well and just imagine obviously the people in Ukraine but for people across Europe as well for older people who've lived through um, you know, the Cold War and, you know, all that came with the Second World War and things like that, Of that all feeds back into the delicate kind of negotiations between big powers, doesn't it? Because, you know, you push things a little bit too far from the US or from, you know, Scott Morrison even or anyone else. And, you know, that, that spectra comes a little bit closer to home for the, you know, millions of people. There is always this possibility, and especially when uh, you have a country which is a nuclear power uh, that feels cornered, uh, I think that at some point the calculations may be misguided. So instead of thinking rationally and just give me, give me, give me the opportunity to go a step back. So the overall idea about the use of nuclear weapons is the non-use of them. It's the idea of deterrence from the threat of using them. If you reach the point to use them, your uh, deterrence has failed and therefore you, your whole strategy has failed. Which means that if we reach the point that nuclear weapons are used, we are the end, we are, you know, we are in the abyss. So, and this is not about what Putin or Russia is going to do, but also how the U Europe and NATO is going to navigate the space uh, at the moment. I think 
and maybe this can be prophetic. I don't think that you know it's prophetic. I think that you know we have seen it happening in other in other uh, contexts over the past 25-30 years. I think that what is going to happen is that we are going to have a long-term insurgency, and in an in, insurgency where we are going to see private military companies being involved one way or another, and this is because national armies are out of bounds to operate in this uh, in this environment for a number of reasons, which you know, we don't have the time to, to go through now. So we have a lot of military personnel, very well trained, available, and with uh, at a good price, they can deliver that service because for them it's just a service, which is quite chilling, I have to say. Uh, but I have seen that happening elsewhere. Uh, after the end of the Cold War, it is a booming industry. I mean, if you look at the budgets of these uh, enterprises, they match countries in terms of budget. And I think that the aim of NATO would be to drag it to this kind of low insurgency until they manage to sort of try and find uh, maybe not necessarily a solution, but maybe a new point of balance, a point that Putin can, if he's still in power, can draw a new line uh, in order to uh, 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 try and minimize the possibility of having a nuclear catastrophe. However, thinking about the size of Ukraine, which is a massive country with 60, 70 million people, and seeing this as I think Jackson said, as a fragile state or a failed state, this is really a nightmare scenario. Because if Afghanistan had this tremendous impact with probably the tenth of the population and the land mass size, imagine about that with Ukraine at the step of Europe. So it is it is a really worrying scenario. But nothing that wouldn't surprise me if it happens. Uh, Costas, it's um, it's not the uh, most optimistic point to end on, but uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your knowledge with us. You know, everyone I'm sure is feeling pretty nervous about what's going on in the world at the moment. It's really good um, just to hear uh, your analysis. Really appreciate you joining us. And thank also you, for you. highlighting the importance of civil society as well i think that's a really oh it's absolutely it's it's yeah. paramount it's paramount yeah. it's paramount thank you for having me thank you very much i really enjoyed that thanks, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in we'll catch you in a couple of weeks you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to all the w's.3cr.org.au